Welcome to this episode of The Rise After the Fall. I'm so elated to have our guest today. He is my friend, my brother. We go way back. The Reverend Barry Edgman. <laughs> hey, buddy. It's exciting to have you speak in the series. What a great message and the response that we've gotten back has been amazing. We go mm. way back. Let's we tell do. the people, as Pastor Buntane used to say, let's tell the folks. Let's tell the folks. Let's tell the folks how far back we go. We go back to 1997. It's a minute. It is a minute. It's a long time. I I felt like I had a, a vision from the Lord back in 1997. I was in college. I felt like God had called me to go to Raleigh. And so I cold called the North Carolina District of the Assemblies of God, which at the time you were the district youth director of, mm -hmm. and told you about this vision that I had. And uh, it began a relationship that has spawned many great memories, has been filled with victories, and and has walked hand in hand through some defeats mm. for both of us. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful when, when I had my fall, I've often said this, that there, there were two people who really stuck with me. I mean, I, I had two leaders, Pastor Buntane was with me and Rich Wilkerson was with me, but guys who were my friends, there was only two who stuck with me and that was Alan Griffin and that was you. Mm. And you really learn who your friends are when you're in the middle of tragedy. Mm -hmm. And so I'm excited for our audience to hear your story today. You can go to lifechurchgreenbay.com to hear the message. It was amazing. Do yourself a favor. Barry also runs a ministry called Father Seekers, which is incredible. If you know anyone who needs help with how to be a father or who grew up fatherless, mm. this is a great ministry for them. But I don't want to steal your thunder. I just thought, why don't we just start and, and tell them your story and how we got to the point where you needed to be restored and resurrected. Yeah, thanks, John. And it, I, I was thinking about, <clears throat> I don't think we've ever done together a podcast that was recorded, but we've done a lot of podcasts in your studies. When we got through, we said, oh, I wish we would have recorded this. No like, doubt. It would have been better. It would have been better. <laughs> <laughs> we had one of those conversations so, last week where you yes, were like, we this is a podcast. Yeah, well, we should have. And, for the life of me, I can't tell you what we talked about last nope, week. Me That's either. why you, you click. <laughs> but we did. We should do. We should start doing that. But uh, back to my story. My, I guess uh, I alluded to it in the message that when when you start looking back at your brokenness and looking back at the 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 planting of the seed and when it started and then the slow process of the seed dying and then coming to fruition with the fruit you know it, it the, the seed of brokenness was sown early mm. and the seed of brokenness germinated over years and as it germinated and finally died there were things in play at that time that when the seed was planted i had no control over but as I grew older, I became responsible for the outcome and the fruit of the seed. In other words, I had to recognize it and deal with it. And I missed a lot of that. I didn't, I, although I was in the midst of a Bible college, university degree, and then ministry and marriage and kids, I, I was I still looking back through the journey to Wholeness Lens I was looking back and, and seeing now through wholeness how how I got broken and how mm. brokenness set the course. It makes a huge difference when you can look back with the lenses of healing and wholeness and you look back at your track record and your brokenness. And now you can you can look back and begin to define accurately what happened. Yeah. And when you do that, one one of the things that I've I've noticed is when you do that and you're able to do that, you can look back and you can you can cut time off the clock of the healing process because you're looking back at it with wholeness and not through broken lenses. That's really good. You you said the seed of brokenness was sown early in your life. I wonder if you recognized it as brokenness when it was being sown or if you had to wait to look back. I, re I recognized it as a wound 
in a hurt mm. as a kid, right. as a six, five or six year old kid. But it, when it, when it, and that's the dangerous part about seeds. Seeds always produce more than their size, more than their their visible ability. In other words, it, it multiplies. And when you're a kid, you don't understand. All you understand is the pain and the grief, mm. and that what you feel. That's all you understand. But then that pain and that grief and that hurt and those wounds begin to shape who you are and begin to control your identity. And then. If you don't understand that, you don't come alongside that, what happens is you grow into this fitted identity for you that that came from the brokenness. And it fits your, it creates this shape or form. You know, you can put, a, put the seed of an oak tree in a, in a pot, a three by three pot. And the potential of that oak tree is to grow 100 feet tall, over a period of 100 years, grow huge and big and limbs spread out. But if if that seed remains in that three-by-three three pot, that tree will never reach the full potential of its seed. Mm. But, but, but when seeds of brokenness are sown, it matters not how big the pot is. It will corrupt and destroy and twist. And the identity, just through the identity, like I've heard you preach many times, when our identity is twisted and broken... We begin to interpret the world. We begin to interpret God, the relationships we have, and the influence that we we have through our giftedness. We interpret that power of those gifts mm. with brokenness. That's so good. You had some pretty traumatic experiences really early on, and I, I think the thing that jumps out to me about your journey is it's a reminder that we're not always the one planting seed in our life. Your dad planted some pretty early seed in your life that was really traumatic to you. You want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So what a great insight because, again, I, I wished um, looking back now with with those wholeness glasses, when you look back at that and those seeds that were planted that I had no control over, but I was the field in which they were planted, hmm. but then became responsible for when I got to a place, I became responsible for it. So there's the time they were planted to the time I became responsible for my actions. And there's that period, and I don't remember really actually how many years it was because I think it's a graduated process because at a certain age, you feel certain things. Like in junior high, you begin to form, elementary, junior high, you begin to form your identity. And then high school, it's a little different than college. But I think as you look at that, and you begin to evaluate um, the pain through pain, and you begin to interpret life, and then you begin to react instead of respond. So my dad, uh, he left. Um, he abandoned us at, I was about six, I think, years old. Mm. And we lived, I'll never forget where we lived. Uh, we lived in a trailer park in Ringgold, Georgia. Wow. Never even heard of it. Yep. And it's it's. The, the trailer park was called Wagon Wheel Valley. Like, I'll never, I can take you now in my mind, I can take you down the road, down a little asphalt road where you ride up to the top of the hill and we would ride our, our Schwinn <laughs> three-speed, three slick, rear slick tire, front, you know, front handbrake. We would ride from the top of the hill and slide sideways and see who could slide the long. <laughs> did it have the little shifter in it the did. center? Oh, Indeed. man. Indeed. I always wanted one of those bikes. Had I kept that bike, I would be like several hundred thousand. Like that, but those bikes <laughs> right. are, you can't even find them. You can't find them. Yeah. So when you grow up that way, like your neighbors are literally, literally, literally and, and all trailers are about the same. You know, they're laid out about the same. And yeah. you can be sitting at your dining room table and look across and see the other family waving. So uh, my dad had created this relationship with the, the lady next door and he left and he just disappeared one night. And what's interesting is I'll never forget the night, the night up before he, um, you know, kids know stuff. Yeah. Kids know stuff. And, and we underestimate the power of a, a child's intuition or a child's discernment. Um. But I knew something was up, and we were supposed to leave the next day to go on a camping trip. 
So lightning, thunder, rain, that kind of thing. And I remember asking my dad, um, are you are you leaving, going anywhere? He said, no, 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 no. no. Wow. Well, well, and I found what's interesting before service today, I found some pictures of that very room and my bed and the window and the picture, the little picture that was above it. And my mind went back to that moment. Talk about a trigger. Bro. So uh, the next morning, uh, we couldn't find him. Like he had just disappeared. And uh, my mom called. I was the oldest. I was six. And I had a sister, a middle sister who was uh, four and a half. And then twin sisters who were two and a half. So we couldn't find my dad. He, my mom called hospital, sheriff's department. Long story short, the next door neighbor's husband came over and said, hey, have you seen? Oh, no. And my mom said, no, have you seen my dad? And he said, no. And then they begin to put pieces together. And they begin to, they begin to, well, oh, you remember when they would used to stand out in the road and talk and smoke cigarettes and, or, or down at the basketball court or the community center in the, in the, you know, in a, in a trailer park, what a community center is. It's a, it's a, it's a basketball court with a picnic table. That's what it is. But, Stop. you know, they would be down there and, uh, uh, <laughs> beer cans scattered everywhere. Um, and a grill, an old hod, hodgepodge grill. Drilled into the ground. Drilled into yeah. the ground, yeah. yeah. <laughs> four, four Lean, inches wide. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that's where everybody would throw their cigarette butts in the grill. So, you, you know, the kids would pick them up and mess with them. Oh, my gosh. But anyway. It uh, all started to make sense, though, when you right, looked back right. with different information. Suddenly, the conversations that they were having and the huddles that they were having, those mm -hmm. things suddenly made sense. Right. Even as a kid, you recognize and you remember. Uh, you remember how how people will be when they're in where when they're involved in relationships you're connected to and there's things going on wrong they always treat you different in a very positive like a very ingratiating kind mm. inclusive way yeah. and i remember that lady doing me that way and my sisters like you know looking back it was like extraordinary like that's weird but Nonetheless, that happened, and then um, there began a, a series of events that happened. And as you, as you can imagine, a, a mom, single mom, we had to move in with my grandparents. And thank God for that because they were really great people. Mm -hmm. So we lived with them and grew up. That's where I grew up with my grandparents because my mom worked all the time. And then my sister's. Uh, they walked through the fatherless thing too. And since that time, I've had conversations with them about some of the things that they've dealt with as, as a fatherless daughter. Yeah. And as you look back at their lives and talk to them and their pain, then it surely affected them as much as it did me. So what's interesting is that your dad's actions gave you responsibilities that you were never meant to have. Never meant to carry, never meant to bear, and neither were they were they ever meant for me to to transact or transfer to my kids? Right. They're, well, you're the man of the house now. Right. Those are things that right. a, a young boy hears when his father is gone. Yeah. You know, you got to step up now. Right. Exactly. You got to take care of mama now because because your daddy left, and you and it, it creates these weird mother son connections that you deal with in Journey to Wholeness. Not like mm -hmm. a weird, I don't mean it weird like it's inappropriate. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. just like a relationship dynamic that was never meant to be had. And then you lost the relationship uh, with your dad. And it, it felt like your dad was sowing seeds in your life that you were having to harvest as consequences. Mm -hmm. And and I think that that, as I've, as I've heard your story over the years, it feels like those things, the consequences were deferred. Uh, the way, the way the consequential harvesting, uh, the way that I like to look at that is that we, there are seeds when we're young that we, we have sown into our, our field, our life that we have zero control over, but we become responsible for. But then there are those seeds, second generation seeds that come from first generation sowing mm. that if we don't recognize it and deal with it, we sow again that th same thing and we harvest a multiplicity of 
problems, pain, identity issues, wow. um, emotional things. And then we begin to transfer those to those we love. And and that's one of the things, you know, you mentioned Father Seekers is that's one of the things that we try to attack in Father Seekers is the generational hurt and wound that as it as it is transferred to the next generation, it multiplies in power, it multiplies in effect and strength, and it multiplies in destruction. Mm. So that's one of the things that we attack. But, you know, going back to that, I remember standing in my grandmother's house one day looking in a mirror, and I, I was in such pain as a kid, but I I didn't know it. And I would talk to Jesus, and, and I remember this like like zero, like no fog, clear as day. I stood in the mirror and I said, Jesus, if my pain can help all the people in the rest of the world, then use my pain and and help me help people who are in pain. So out of the mouth of little kids, How you know, old were you? About six years old. I mean, Jeez. I used to like, yeah. I even, I, would, I knew at that time that there was something, I didn't know what ministry was, but I knew God wanted me to do something and I didn't know what it was. But But tracking back, even in the midst of a terrible, a terrible sowing of pain and 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 some good things too as well, you begin to recognize what God's doing in your life, and that's why it's so important as kids we understand that kids we we actually we can control parts of their future by sowing the seeds of the gospel in their life, and that's one of the things that saved me because my grandmother did that. She started like early on, early on, and those seeds helped me stay, stay. It helped me make it. One of the things that Rick Warren says that I really love is he consistently says, God never wastes our pain. And I think what's interesting is that you just said that out of your own mouth as a six-year-old, you said, God, someday use my pain, which he's using now. Be careful what you mm-hmm. wish for. You're thinking, well, no, I wanted you to use the old pain. I don't mm-hmm. want any new pain mm-hmm. for you to have to deal with. But I, I, what I love is that in God and his redeeming nature will take every little seed of pain that someone else sowed in our life and take it as something where he'll harvest it as a solution to mm-hmm. someone else's problem. And I, I've heard you talk so many times about your grandpa. Mm-hmm. And had your dad not left, as much as that stunk and still stinks, you wouldn't have had the access to your grandpa that you had. Mm-hmm. And I think some of your personality was garnered by watching such a man of integrity. Mm-hmm. So God is so in the redemption business that that he placed you underneath the care mm. of a guy who has made such an indelible impact upon your life. Mm. And then he has then fast forward used you in that same way in, in the lives of people who aren't your sons, but have become your spiritual sons or your spiritual mentees, mm-hmm. if you would. And mm-hmm. so talk about some of the impact that your grandpa in the redemptive process even had on your life. Cause I hear you quote him a lot. <laughs> he was quotable. He, he was, uh, he was, a, he, he loved baseball and one of the fondest memories I have is we would, on Sundays, we would uh, look at, at, back then, the funny papers, you know, oh on Sundays and watch. Yeah. My grandmother would cook a big lunch and then we would, of course, first go to church, have the big lunch and then sit down and watch the Braves baseball game because he loved the Braves. Like, we would watch it. And <laughs> uh, he taught me how to build, how to work on cars, how to how to frame houses, how to... Uh, he taught me a lot about common sense. He... He never made it out of the third grade. Um, wow! And his he was abused by his dad, and when he was like eight years old, he ran away because of the abuse. And uh, back back in that day, you either went to an orphanage or you ran. And he ran. He was a he was a vagabond for a while. He hopped trains and skipped around. And wow! Yeah, like so, a literal hobo. Like yeah, yeah. Wow. And and when you go through journey to wholeness, you track this stuff and you find out. And then I remembered, I, I thought maybe that's why. Like I why, don't. Why I'm, you're a vagabond? I'm a vagabond. Yeah. Like I moved. It, I've moved over fifty times in my life. Y- like you for me. You have a uh, an adve- You you could say when you're not healed, you would say I had a wayward spirit. Mm-hmm. But when you're healed, you would say well, I had an adventurous spirit. Adventure. Yeah. Yeah. A pioneering spirit. Yeah. And you don't. Right. You but. 
again, lenses. So one of the things that he taught me, he taught me two outstanding things I'll never forget, and I try to teach all the guys that I talk to. He he was a uh, he created for the founder he worked for. He created some equipment and some motors. Uh, Wheeland Foundry in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he created these things and and made the company hundreds of thousands of dollars with this one thing. And I said, I said to him, Pop, did you not like claim part of that? He said, Oh no, no, no. <laughs> he said, I work for them. It belongs to them. So he was that guy of integrity. Wow. And he, he, when he retired, he was retired for about three days. And then he said, I can't handle it. So he went back to work and worked <laughs> till he was 78 years old. And then he died on a couch one day. His just heart clicked and he was out. But he w- he worked at this gas station. I'll never forget. He'd get up at 4.30 in the morning, leave the house at 5.30, eat, eat a breakfast that would kill you and me. <laughs> like real, Biscuits, real gravy, butter. Bacon, yeah, yeah. yeah, bake, fried egg, like, and... And hallelujah. <laughs> my grandma get uh, a spoonful of bacon grease from previous meals, dip it out of that Maxwell ca- uh, Maxwell House coffee can, throw it in the skillet, and there, there's your egg. Like, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, if you eat that way today, you get arrested because it's like you're, <laughs> you're a food terrorist. Like, if you feed your kids yeah, like that, yeah, it's child abuse. Die, yeah, it's dying. <laughs> But he would get up and he would go to this gas station and he was supposed to open it at 6 a.m. Like it was supposed to open. So he'd get there at like 5. Uh, he would leave the house at 5.15, get there at about 5.30. And then back then, you had to, to fill the oil, the oil containers, the, mm. the dispensers, and put the garbage cans out and fill the oil, uh, the water cans and, and all the paper towels, all that kind of stuff. And he would do that. He would go and do that. And then at 5.45 every morning, Monday through Saturday, every, every week for I don't know how many years, he would clock in at 5.45 after, after getting rid of everything. Setup. He said, that's supposed to be ready. I'm supposed to have that ready. Mm. And I'm supposed to have it ready. So he had everything ready and open, flipped the lights on it at, at 5.45, and everything was ready. He would not do anything on his employer's time. But he told me two things. He said, son, never forget you only have two things in life. Number one, your name. And number two, your character. Mm. And he was saying to me about character, he was saying you, all you have is your integrity. And so those, those things, you have your name and you have your integrity. And if you ever lose one, you lose both. You can't, you can't, you can't keep one and lose the other. Yeah, they, they work together. And he didn't know how to communicate that with Real big words, but he communicated it with his lifestyle. And um, I've often said if I could be half the man he was, I would be a great man. I think what's interesting is he was setting standards for you. He was laying an example down for you that if you were healthy, you wouldn't have felt those standards through a lens of pressure. But I think when you're unhealthy... And that's the standard that you feel like you have to live up to, and then you don't do that. Mm. Then it creates this pressure within mm-hmm. us, mm-hmm. and that's the that's the danger of patterning yourself after somebody who was healthy when you're unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And so you lived underneath this beautiful display of integrity as a person who was the seed of someone who had less integrity than necessary who abandoned you and your sisters and your mother. You stepped into a role of having to be an adult before you needed to be an adult. And you stifle those things. That's our natural inclination. Mm -hmm. We do that because you're still a kid and you still want to play baseball and you still want to go to the junior prom and you want to do all of that stuff. And, And yet... You're living a duality where you're having to be a grown-up on one hand, but trying to be a kid on the other. Mm -hmm. And then you get arrested in development somewhere within that process. And so you you lived life, you played sports, you went to dances, and then then you went off to college in Florida. Mm -hmm. And it feels like from the moment that you got into ministry, you were successful. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't, I wanted to do, uh, because again, out, and this is, this is unusual, but out of the pain of being a fatherless guy, I wanted to be a youth pastor. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it just is a natural 
uh, proclivity to just think, okay, I want to help kids who are broken. Yeah. Or may not have a dad. Or even kids that had a dad, you know, it's good. I just wanted to do youth ministry. So that's what I began to pursue. And in college, I jumped into an internship first year, first semester. Um, did that, graduated, jumped into uh, youth ministry, and there you go. Yeah, well, what's crazy is that you you had a hand of favor on your life. You you went to Southeastern and um, had a semblance of success, had that internship, and uh, you met Jenny, you married Jenny. You guys actually had a, a, a wedding that ministry-wise would be like something that you'd see in a movie. Mm. I mean, you had yeah. there was a church back then that at the time was the largest church in the Assemblies of God. They had an auditorium that was unheard of, 10,000 seats, yeah. and a, a Carpenter's Home Church Carpenter's in Lakeland, Florida. Church, yeah. And you guys got married. Tell the story. It was on a Sunday, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> That's part of, <laughs> again, the service. Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, it was fun, like... Um, which is interesting. My dad came to that and to see he and my mom in the same church building, which had been decades. It's like, uh, is the, is it going to, it's going to burn down tornado yeah. today <laughs> inside there. Like inside Carpenter's home church at the time, if on certain days, because the air conditioner wasn't running good there, there would be miss There would be a, like a humid humidity thing in there. And, and often I thought, you know, if my mom and dad come in here, there's going to be a storm in here. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, so it was a Sunday morning. We got married and Pastor Carl Strader, he was a legend. He a is, legend. He, is a, he was a man before his own time, like a brilliant, brilliant man. Incredible communicator, great leader. Yeah, amazing communicator. And the beauty about him was that he was the kindest guy. I'd never seen him without a smile ever on, my, on his face. Never. Without, wow. even when he was not happy or, or upset. He, he, and I never met anybody from that day to this who could quote scripture like him, except one other man. Hmm. And, uh, pastor Carl Strader, he did the ceremony. It was about marriage. And, um, we sat on the front row and listened and then came up and did our vows. And it was amazing, man. It was, it was like a really cool, like, it was a big deal, and I didn't realize how big a deal it was until afterwards. Yeah. Like, getting married like that. Even now, looking back on it, it began a whirlwind of favor for you, where you had the ear of Carl Strader. So many people wanted that. They were desperate for it. Grown men, full-blown pastors of other big churches who wanted to get access to this person you had access mm -hmm. to. You ended up, later on, working as the youth pastor at Victory in mm -hmm. Lakeland, one of the biggest churches still to this day in the Assemblies of God. You had great success there. You were then cherry-picked by the North Carolina district. Mm -hmm. It was unheard of that a district would go, even to this day, it's very uncommon mm -hmm. for a district to go outside of its district and hire someone from somewhere else. And so you were cherry-picked by the state of North Carolina. You went in, you became the district youth director of the North Carolina District of the Assemblies of God, and were incredibly successful there. You had great favor among the guys in Springfield. And I'm not saying this because you've told me this. I watched this happen. I'm, I'm narrating what happened. The guys who were in the national office, the Jay Moonies, the Tom Greens, the Rick Lormers of the world, those guys knew you and were connected to you. And you were walking in what every kid who's coming through, let's just talk from the Assembly of God perspective because that's what our foundation mm -hmm. was. For every kid True. in an Assembly of God college who's coming out with a major in youth ministry, if you told them one day you're going to be a district youth director, mm -hmm. they would probably not believe you, first of all. It's, it's a dream job. Yeah. And so you were experiencing all of this success, and then, and then you hit a, you hit a roadblock mm -hmm. and you were given an ultimatum. Mm -hmm. Will you talk about that? Yeah. So which ultimatum? Cause there's several. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stumped. He just like, made me like, laugh oh. like an old head. <laughs> 
<laughs> for what is that your uh, your your son's church attendance? Right? Oh, yeah. yeah he, better, so, he better go to an AG church. Yeah. So, oh my so Father, um, forgive him. He knows not what he does. Yeah. <laughs> so we, uh, my my son is uh, well. All three are really gifted, but one was singing at a. A non-denominational church in Fayetteville, and he was involved there. And um, um, one of my friends, uh, Pat Schatzline, was there and had a school of ministry there. And um, I, I had made some some not bad moves at the district, but I made some some ignorance moves. Like there were things that I did at the district level that uh, were not, I didn't steal or take anything. I just, some of the things that I did there, I didn't use wisdom in because I was trying so hard to perform. So I made mistakes. And then um, Dr. Charles Kelly, he was uh, the superintendent at that time. And he was a, a very kind man and one of the things that happened was uh, as I was coming to my end of my career there, my son uh, started uh, singing at a church in Fayetteville. And I showed up at the church with my family and it was recorded on TV. Mm. And I think uh, when it was seen there, uh, when it was seen that became the catalyst for the move, for the transition. And the, the um, when catalyst, transitional catalyst happens, that's not really the reason. Yeah. The reason is other things, and that just happens to be the thing that, that did it. They may have been already looking for something because you, right. you were not, I wouldn't say that you weren't compliant. I just would say uh, sometimes visionary leaders who have to work for a non-visionary leader become overwhelming to their leader. Yeah. And so then that person becomes, um, it's like having something stuck in your teeth. Yeah, yeah. And and I believe too that when you, when you operate and don't really know, you know what you think should be done, but you try to figure it out and you don't always do well at that or perhaps you're trying to perform and climb the ladder, which a great deal of that was you know, a ladder climbing thing for me because of, of the insecurity and inferiority. Like if I can do this, I'll be this. Yep. And in that, in that ladder climbing, I think it created a lot of confusion for me there. So that transitioned out and we, uh, my family and I transitioned out of the district office, which for me to the day still is my favorite job. I loved I loved working in the district office with other youth yeah, guys. It's a great job. It's uh it's an opportunity to mentor young guys, which is definitely in your purview. Mm-hmm. And it's it's challenging it's challenging to have a vision that's bigger than the person who gives you a job. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. So I feel like you're this is a line that you've used with me. Your foot was too big for their boot. You moved on. You took a job at that non-denominational church, which, by mm-hmm. the way, wasn't like some watered-down, mamby-pamby, seeker-sensitive church and mm-hmm. wasn't preaching the gospel. They were as spirit-filled as any Assembly of God church, and that pastor is one of the great communicators in America. Mm-hmm. And so you naturally transitioned into that. You did amazing in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, to fast-forward... Somewhere in the process, you you got sick. You have mm. a, a what was the word that I'd be looking for? It's uh, when other generations have it. It's a genetic gen- disease. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So at that time, which is about the time it it started to erupt, is when um when we when we lived there um. I began to have problems with blood pressure and other things. So I went to the doctor, get checked out and they noticed your blood pressure is extremely high and you, you have an issue, you know, they do the blood work, the doctors do. And they recognized that there was some genetic kidney problems, CKD, uh, chronic kidney disease, which basically means 
that your kidneys are in in uh, by historical design. They're in they're in kidney they're in failure mode. So it's a just a it's a tick-tock matter of time until you're gonna die. Basically, um, that's fast forwarding that definition. Yeah, but you either you either get a transplant or you're on dialysis for the rest of your life, and and that began like a downward spiral for me, a ten year period of a downward spiral. Yeah, you were on dialysis for a long time, a couple is, of years, which yeah, which is depressing. Mm-hmm. It's makes you feel hopeless, mm-hmm. and so how can you be productive when you have to be in dialysis? I mean, was it every day that you were? Every other day okay. for two years, and you or me, I sat in the chair for four and a half hours every every other day. Right. So then that creates a whole other dynamic where you're dependent upon that. So mm-hmm. that affects what you can do. Mm-hmm. career-wise, mm-hmm. and and being someone who was a pastor and then walked away from the pastoral ministry, I can speak from experience that it's very difficult to find employment mm-hmm. outside of a church and have it be something that you find meaningful. Mm-hmm. And so you're on dialysis. You have spent your whole life building this beautiful reputation, building a, a, an incredible career, and now you find yourself in dialysis, and so you end up having to take uh, a job outside of your mm-hmm. purview. So, yeah, before before that, I was I was the lead pastor in uh, Carolina, and um, I I just got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore because it's mm. a twenty four seven job. For I sure, I mean everybody knows it. Well, whether you admit it or not, it's true. When you say. You were a lead pastor in Carolina. It makes me want to sing James Taylor. In my mind, I'm going to Carolina. Because, you know, my wife is from South Dakota. Yeah. And if you call it the Dakotas, if you want to see, if you want to see Mama Sonny raise up, just call it, hey, you're from the Dakotas. Just say, no, I'm from South Dakota. So it's funny that people from North Carolina will say I'm from the Carolinas. And so you, that's just a little side piece. Yeah. I haven't heard you call it in Carolina. I guess yeah. they call the hockey team the Carolina Panthers. The Carolina Panthers. Is that because it's on the border or because they just want to both um, have some swag? I I think probably both. Yeah. You know, because there's fan base that pulls from South to to uh, Charlotte, which is on the border, yeah. basically. So all your life, you're in you're in this in your career, all of your professional life, you're climbing the ladder, you're being successful, you're doing all of these things. All the while, you're. I'm just gonna go there go. more than I will with other guests because we know each other so well. All That's the while, good. you're putting your wife through school, you're supporting her, you're helping her achieve dreams at first, and if and. To be fair, she was doing the same thing for you. Oh, I'm yeah, not trying to take did. anything no, no, away no, from Jenny. Did. Absolutely. Because, you know, I, I loved Jenny like a sister. I love, I shouldn't say past tense, but it's, it. she climbed her own corporate ladder. She did she, very well. She did very well. She mm-hmm. became a, a doctor of audiology. Mm-hmm. And the, the thing that was challenging for me to watch from a distance is to watch the shoe kind of go on the other foot to where you spent, you know, 25 years supporting someone and then you became ill and then, and then it flipped and she was, uh, supporting you. You were, you were unable to work like you had before. Mm -hmm. And then you, it seemed like you were going to die. And then Mm -hmm. your sister stepped in and she miraculously, uh, gave you Mm -hmm. an organ Yeah, and you got, transplant surgery and went through the process and you became healthy, which to me, as I watched it from the outside, I was like, yes, man, like this is the, we're about to get our crap in gear now. Mm -hmm. And Barry's about to be back in the game, man. And they're going to be back pastoring or doing whatever. And Mm -hmm. then, man, it was like all of a sudden, she was like, peace out. And that was really for me, as I watched that, that Mm -hmm. was when a real, spiral began because mm-hmm. you were married how long? 35 years. So to that to that point, like she she did support me when I was in college, finishing college, and yep. she traveled. I mean, she went with me, moved, we moved, you know, I moved a lot and do this job 
let's go here, do this. And she worked and did well. Uh, she was very gifted at what she does and still is, actually. And one of the things that while she was in school, I took, you know, kids at school, did that because it's a very laborious, as you know, it's a very laborious task to be in graduate school and work for the government at the same time. So it, yeah. was, it, was, this, it was this big, huge deal. And then, but when I was in college, she supported me and helped me and, and we got through. Uh, one, of the, one of the big deals um, about that point, like w- w- looking back, like her, uh, her career took her to a place which in a very short time, she, she accelerated and did very well. Like she's just that kind of a per very smart, very intelligent, and she um, actually came from from virtually a contract labor or a contract person for the government to being the chief of audiology and speech pathology at one of the VA medical centers in the Carolinas. So she did really well, and in that track of ten years where I was. I was ill like that when when I first went to the district's office idea uh, uniquely is when I was diagnosed with kidney disease. Mm-hmm. So there was this like this 10 year period where I was sick and and we went through this thing so in the sickness part I had to take care of myself and the kids because her job was where very important and there were times where our paths crossed where oh, we've got the kids, let's do this. And then empty nest came along. So there were these two parallel pa- uh, tracks going like as I look back with the glasses where I was I was trying to stay well and she was working to support the family. Yeah, She was working to for the insurance, which was ridiculous at the time. Just your medication was insane. The oh, amount of money yeah. That it cost. Uh, yeah. Uh, thousands of dollars and had... Had she not had the job that she did, we could have never, like literally never could have afforded it. But in that process, and these seeds, these seeds going back to that, there were things in me that were were, were part of me because I, I, I had no reference point for things. Mm-hmm. So I was always reaching and struggling and grabbing and in that struggling and grabbing, I thought, climb the ladder, you'll do better. Right. You'll make all this money. You'll take care of everybody. You'll you'll help them have everything you didn't have. You'll you know you'll have a big church and a yeah. big home. You wanted home. to make her dad proud because yeah, you were that. fatherless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of that, yeah. all of that. So let's do this. Do all these things. But that was looking back. That was not the path. Mm-hmm. I was I was hustling and struggling to try to do something that was based in brokenness and in the futility of yeah. of that was just magnified. So you work harder. It's like the yeah. carrot, you know, you can never get it. So on these two parallel paths, um, me maintaining working before dialysis, then going to doctor's appointments, taking care of myself, and she was on this fast track in her own right. So for almost a decade, we were we were paralleling tracks. And it got to the point where miscues as a dad, miscues as a husband, uh, which I'm responsible for. Uh, and there were balls that I dropped. Yeah. But I began to, um, I, I, at a while, there was a point there where I just gave up. Like, I'd made the decision, you know, it, this is not going to work. Yeah. You know. But anyway, got the transplant. My sister so graciously uh, donated a kidney to me, which was a miracle. Um, yeah, yeah. And you've met, you've said before that she was um, she was growing that kidney for all that time. She yeah. had a super kidney. Yeah, she had actually. Yeah, and the doctor said we left the big kidney in her and put the bigger the the smaller of the bigger kidney kidneys wow. in you. So she incubated that thing for fifty years. I love that. Yeah. Instead of God could have just said, okay, you're healed, which would have been the awesome story. Which That awesome story, I was thinking, if God does that, 
It's going to open up doors for me to go all over the nation and tell the <laughs> testimony. It's the yeah. stupid stuff you think when you're broken. Well, and the things that when you're trying to climb a ladder. Yeah. And then, and then God emphasized and amplified the miracle. Here's the story. I incubated this for you for 50 years. Now sit back and get better. Wow. Like you're not going anywhere. Yeah. Just sit right here. So we got to that point and, and uh, Jenny said, um, Saturday after Thanksgiving, she said, I just don't want to be married anymore. And so that began a process. Now, here's the interesting story. That, that, that morning when I woke up and my dad was gone, the, the pain that most, like I felt like my guts were ripped out of me as a little guy, yeah. little six-year-old guy. Almost 50 years from that period until the time I was divorced, or, or, or Jenny said, I don't want to be married anymore. And again, I'm, I take responsibility for my actions and missing cues and that sort of thing. I, my mind and my heart and my body physically went back to that moment as a six-year-old kid. That same pain, that same rejection, abandonment, the whole thing, it just all came flooding back, but it was intensified and amplified. And everything that I'd done to that point, I thought it, it was for naught. Because one of the things that I did with my dad is I lived a reactionary lifestyle that said I'll never be like him. I had chronic kidney disease, genetics, nothing I could do about it. I was divorced now. I'd failed, failed my family. Drop the ball, whole nine yards. So living, and I tell guys this all the time, if you're living a reactionary life to not be like your dad, you're living the wrong life. Hmm. You have to respond to what he did and the pain that it caused, identify it, deal with it, and then move on. Anytime we're reactionary, we're creating a war that we don't need to create. Wow. And it's a war you'll never win. You'll only take casualties. Wow. So good. What I like about how you responded to to me talking about Jenny is you reacted like a healed man rather than a hurt man. And I think a few years ago, you would have responded differently. Maybe you would have wanted to get on maybe my unfair description of what happened. And you go, yeah, man, skip her, man. She blah, blah, blah. But instead... You defended her, and that speaks to the integrity that was instilled in you as a little boy. I feel like you, you've been, you spent a lot of your life trying to live up to your grandpa and living down your father. True. Very accurate. Very and, accurate. And in the process of your fall, this is the whole premise of this podcast, mm. is that Pastor Kendall said in the episode that we did with him, he said, you've got to hit the ground so hard that you bounce back up. And mm -hmm. you hit the ground hard, man. It was like, I, I thought we were going to lose you mm. legitimately. I thought I was going to lose me. And then later on, you did talk about that, where you mm -hmm. said there were, you had thoughts you're just going to walk out into the Smoky Mountains and mm -hmm. just disappear. And I look at that, and to see the difference now, to see this man who's on this journey who has lost 60 pounds and has a glow in his on his skin and a sparkle in his eye and a pep in his step and a hope in his heart and to have you respond the way that you responded when I I didn't attack your ex-wife but I I carry offense. I have secondhand offense. We all carry secondhand offense, right? So I, I want to say, man, to hell with her. Yeah. And you were like, no, bro. Yeah. I missed cues. That mm. was the biggest thing. I had that written down in my notes. That's the biggest thing I took from your message. You said there were cues that I missed as a dad and a husband. And I was like, that's a dude who's healed. A dude who's like, you know what? And I'm going to take, I'm going to be a grown man. I'm going to take mm -hmm. responsibility for that because mm -hmm. you've thankfully through journey to wholeness and, your, your continued journey in grinding that out, you, you have realized where it was that you were arrested in development and you've allowed the Holy Spirit to heal those things. And I think that there's people who are, who are listening to this 
who, whether they're in ministry or not, but they're wounded and, and they're trying to live one thing down while live up to another mm-hmm. thing. And it's going to be the proverbial, as you just said, the chasing of the carrot and they'll never catch it. And so for anybody who is wounded, anybody who is hurt, I would encourage you to uh, reach out to somebody, anybody, you can reach out to us. Mm-hmm. You can reach out to somebody else who you have in your life. If you have never been through a program, i I'm a firm believer in our program, Journey mm-hmm. to Wholeness. Obviously, it worked for me. It worked mm-hmm. for Sonny. It it worked for you. It's been incredible. And it hasn't worked for everybody. Let's be frank. Mm-hmm. It hasn't worked for everybody. But it's worked for everybody who's hit the bottom. So, yes. And and Sonny says that you're, you will never get healed until you fall all the way. Exactly. And then Kendall said but you got to hit hard enough amounts. And those are two, that's a coin there. That's those sayings are each side of that coin. One of the things that I've, I've realized with this whole thing is that, um, that in my life, had I done three things, I would have never fallen. Okay. Had I prayed regularly, Wow. read scripture, and prayed and stayed full of the Holy Spirit, I never would have fallen. Wow. That's, so, that's a pretty easy formula. I mean, it's easy, it's easy to say, but it's hard to live, right? Oh, well, there's not, the part about simplicity is simplicity is easy to describe and explain, but it's, it's more difficult to lean into and live out. For sure. And one of the things, you know, that I would say to guys who are listening to this, who are broken, you can you can continue to you can repent and begin the process before you crash and burn or you can rebel and pay the price and one of the things one of the days i will never forget is where i remember where i was in knoxville who i was with what i was doing sunny day sun's out may in in knoxville and you called and said well it's either going to be a great weekend, you're going to have a great weekend, or I'm going to wreck your day. <laughs> <laughs> and you said, Sonny, and I want you to come to Green Bay and go through our pastoral restoration program. And at that time, I knew because I had planned at that time, I was not going to live alone and broken and brokenhearted and wounded. I just had decided there's there's X number of days on the calendar. And and if if something significant doesn't happen in that X number of days, when it gets cold, I'm going to go into the Smokies and I'm never going to be found again. Because you can do that in the Smokies. If oh, you, yeah. You can do it. And you don't have to know a lot about how to do it. You can do it and never be found. Yeah. And I decided to do that because I'd, I'd planned to hide my phone so I couldn't be tracked. I'd planned to park my car in one place and go to another. Like, I'd, I'd planned this thing out. And you you called and you said we want you to come to green bay and in 35 days later i was in green bay and we worked out a plan for 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 the things i had to be trans, transferred here and i met you in nashville and we drove from nashville to well i forgot where we stopped man we sure did we drove a lot though man we drove it was yeah. it was more than three chick-fil-a's and a, a couple of lemonades it it took sure. more than three Chick-fil-A's to get to Green Bay from Nashville. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, you you yeah. said you were going to walk into the Smokies and you said, because uh, that's easy to do, you don't need to know how to do that. What's mm-hmm. interesting is that it's easy to die, but it's hard to live. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so for me to see you now and for anybody who's here who knows you to go, you were a dead man walking mm-hmm. and now you are alive. And this is... Resurrection Sunday, mm-hmm. as we're mm-hmm. recording this, and yeah. it's beautiful to see you and the resurrection that has happened to you. And again, I'll come back to the fact that I think part of that is because you are now responding to life like a healed person rather than a hurt person. I think hurt people deflect but healed people accept. Mm -hmm. And so you have accepted the responsibility of the things that you've done and you are making, you are making restitution for that. Mm -hmm. And I, I speak life over you and the fact that greater days 
are ahead. We know that that's scriptural. The glory of the latter days will be greater than the mm-hmm. glory of the former. And mm-hmm. I believe in Jesus' name that you're going to have a greater relationship with your sons than you've ever had, yeah. that your sons will not grow up feeling like they were fatherless, that they will not grow up feeling like they were um, residue of the ministry. But yeah. you have good boys. They're good Luke, boys. David, Ben, I love them. Yeah. They're beautiful Spirit-filled, on fire, called to the ministry, young men who the greatest days are ahead for them. And so as you listen to this podcast, I want you to know that Pastor Barry is living proof that you can come back, that failure's never final, that it's never too late to begin again because there is a rise after the fall. Hi, friends. It's Sunny again. And I just want to say, Sean and I appreciate your faithful listening. And we hear all the time that many of you are sharing this. In fact, we've had a few people say, I tell everybody I know, specifically other pastors and leaders about this podcast. And so we may have shared in our early season two episode about the story of getting a retreat center that we're now going to call the reserve, Uh, 20 acres, multiple houses, and the ability to house pastors and leaders, their families. We're going to basically say we're hosting the hurting. We're hosting the betrayed. We're restoring the betrayer. Uh, And so now we have a campus to do that on a, a 20 acre property to do that on as well as we'll continue to bring people into Green Bay and we provide um, help in the finances for that and the housing for that at times as needed. Also, we'll continue to go to people. We've done that over the last couple of years, flown directly to couples in crisis. That's been an ongoing thing that Sean and I, Pastor Becky, Pastor Barry have done. But what I wanted to ask you is that um, because this retreat center is $1.8 million, which actually for 20 acres, a massive house, other housing, uh, it's really reasonable. We just happened to find it in a great location. And the person who's selling it to us has a ministry heart. He's on the board of the church that we interned at coming right out of Bible college. It's just crazy, the God story. But we need to get $600,000 as the down payment. Now he's going to spread that over the first year. So it's 54,000 a month. Then after that, the 1.2 million that we will finance with him, those payments will start and that's in the 70 some hundred dollars. So $7,000 a month plus utilities and expenses, but that's much more palpable than 54,000 a month. But for this first year, we're grateful that we didn't have to come up with 600,000 to even begin work on the property. We already own it. We're already doing construction. But what I would ask you is if you would consider, and you may say, it's me. I have, you know, $100,000 put away for our church that we are going to start construction on something. Or you may say, I have $1.8 million at the church I lead and we were breaking ground. But I feel, <laughs> this is the crazy thing. I've heard some crazy stories about pastors who after having the money or praying for the money and they get it for something God's having them do, God told them to give it away. But then God exceeded their expectation and they came back and had eightfold, ninefold. I know of a church in Texas, this just happened. Uh, they gave a million dollars they had raised to break ground on a new property. And the, someone had, had been at this conference with them and they had a roof that had caved in and it was a million dollars to repair it. And God told him, give the million dollars. Well, he did. And within a few weeks, they had a company come to them and offer them money for the land and to give them land they owned. And they basically were given about $8 million from their million dollars they gave away. So I just know that when Sean and I even have given $1,200, which was our first big gift when we were first married at a conference and God told us, give everything. And we had $1,201 in our bank account, which was a ton for us. It was like our savings. We gave it, we got home and we had a check in our mailbox for $1,250. Now we made $49 on that, but it increased our faith. We made a lot of return on our faith. 
and that investment and knowing God will never ask us to give that he doesn't have a huge plan. So I take this time to say, you might be the one that says, we're going to give you 1.8. You'll never have to worry about money as you do this ministry. You might say, we're going to give you 600,000 for the down payment so that you don't have to stress for the first year at 54,000 a pop as you build it out. Or you might say, we're going to give monthly or we have something else in mind. Thank you for considering it. Thank you for stepping out in faith and thank you for being a faithful listener to this. We appreciate you.